Hi everyone, it's Abby and Daniela back this week with something creepy. Hello, hello. So I have decided to conclude this Scream series with an event that was inspired by the film. So it's completely different than the true crime cases that we have been covering where Kevin Williamson drew from those crimes and wrote the Scream film. Um, And he used like the Gainesville Ripper as we covered in the Nathan and Richard Leopold and Loeb um, when creating their, the killers and things like that. But this time after the movie came out, this crime took place, um, and it's often referred to as the Scream Murder, which is weird. I don't know. I feel weird okay. about that, but uh, we will see. But um, just so that frames what we're doing today, we will find out why it's called the Scream Murder. So Kevin Williamson says in an A-frame piece, an article online titled Five Movies That Influenced My Career, he was inspired by Into the Woods, surprisingly, the Broadway play. The deconstruction of the fairy tale is what really drew him in, and he was inspired to deconstruct horror films, thus creating this weird meta um, in 1996's Scream, which originally was going to be called Scary Movie, by the way. Edmund, they fucking... What do you think? Do you like Scream better, or do you? Yeah, I know. And then Scary Movie came became its own mm-hmm. franchise. I like Scream better. Me too. It's original, and I also like how the masked character has a name and it's Ghostface, and I like that too. And by the way, a fun little trivia fact: there are several different masks used throughout some of the films, and you can tell by the shape of the eyes. Interesting. I would have never noticed that. Interesting, right? And like some of the eyes have more of a peanut shape to them, so it's referred to as the peanut-eyed ghost <laughs> face, and then others have different shaped eyes. So interesting. Um, but yeah, so here's something I didn't share. Since we are moving on from the writing and what inspired it, Kevin also took from personal experiences, um, and I wanted to discuss that before we move on from the writing, which was, you know, all these crimes that inspired, yada, yada. Um, so Kevin says that growing up as a gay boy – he can compare the final girl character to that. Like the feeling of not knowing who to trust and trying to make it out of their alive type of feeling, mm-hmm. not knowing who to tell. So he relates in that way to the final girl. And so making Sydney the final girl was very fun for him, I think. And I found that very interesting. And he also drew from a personal experience where he was alone one night. Um, He says, I was house sitting for a friend of mine and I walk into the family room and I see that the windows open and I'm freaked out. So I go and get a butcher knife and I start walking around the house and I call up my friend on the phone and I say, I think someone's in the house. And Mm -hmm. they say on the phone, well, you better go find them. And he starts messing with them and like acting like someone's in the house, maybe Jason's in the house. And so if you couldn't tell that's the idea. That's where he got the idea to um, introduce Casey Becker is the character's name at the beginning of the first scream where Drew Barrymore is in that amazing blonde wig, which mm-hmm. by the way was inspired by Michelle Pfeiffer's Scarface character. Another just, fun fact. That's a wig. It's a wig, girl, and she still has it. Shit. I guess it does look like a wig now that I think about it. Damn it. Super cute and blonde. I don't know why she didn't do blonde more, but I do love that she's a natural, like fiery redhead, so I love her. But anywho. 
So Drew Barrymore's character who dies at the very beginning, Casey Becker, that whole scenario where she gets a phone call and, you know, it it replays throughout all of the films. They get a phone call. It's like a funny little game to play some scary movie trivia. And so he got that idea from his personal experience. And I thought that that was really cool. And um, he and his friend were debating about Friday the 13th and it became like a little argument while he's terrified for his life. So I thought that was funny. So Williamson went on to write, I Know What You Did Last Summer, The Faculty, and Dawson's Creek. The Faculty, really? The, yes. I know what you did last summer, that makes complete sense. Right. I love all these, like, teen, like, the comedy and, like, the teen. I don't know. He just knew what, what was going on and, like, the lingo and everything just felt very fresh. And it makes sense now. I read somewhere that directors often use writers that are, like, younger because they know, like, what's going on. I don't know how to explain it, but like they're more in touch with what's in or like what's what, how are people talking? What are they looking at? Um, just to make it make more sense in script. So, um, so, and he also did vampire diaries. (gasps) So that I I was going to say, aren't you a fan of vampire diaries? I am a fan of vampire diaries. He was a writer for that show as well. Very cool. Um, and coming full circle before we started, the actor Alexander Skarsgård apparently played like a cheesy character in Vampire Diaries, and now he's like a badass in The Northsman, which I love. So, anyways, oh, hold on, I need to you see. will see. There's a bunch of Skarsgårds, so you're gonna see like all his brothers. Uh, oh. One of them was Pennywise, like crazy, like all yes. kinds of characters. Yeah, Wait, and then I think a character in Vampire Diaries. That's what I read. Unless it was True Blood. Yes, he's in True Blood. I was going to say, Damn. wait a minute. Close. I, I got too excited. I just wanted to, you saw, I wanted to tie that in here somehow because that movie did. was just yeah, was so like, good. I remember seeing him in True Blood. I don't remember seeing him in. I know. There's just not a lot of Viking movies. And so I think people are going to be really excited about The Northmen. So I just thought I'd mention it on here. And his name <laughs> in True Blood is Eric Northman. Oh. <gasps> I now that you mentioned that I saw that on a comment on a YouTube on like something about the I was watching interviews. So yeah, that's weird. Northman that to Northman. <laughs> Crazy. He did Vampire Diaries, The Faculty, I know what you did last summer, Dawson's Creek, and I think he did a few other uh projects, but those are the really big ones. And yeah, he's just a very talented guy. Very excited to see where the Scream franchise goes. And with that being said, we are done talking about the films. And we are moving on to a very serious and very dark crime that took place in 2006. Wonderful. Well. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Wonderful, wonderful, but not wonderful. Yes. But and also more recent. So I, I don't know if anyone can relate, but I feel like the more recent the crimes, the like harder it feels for some reason. Like 1920s, that crime was really messed up and sad. But for yeah. some reason, this is... And also, they made a game out of it, so it makes it even worse. So with that being said, the case that has been to referred to as the Scream murder, uh, it was referred to that way because the two killers had mentioned that they were inspired by the film and wanted to imitate the crime. Great. So perfect. I know. This is exactly what you know fans don't want to happen in the horror community. So... Mm-hmm. Cassie Jo Stoddart was born on December 21st, 1989 in Pocatello, Idaho. She and her siblings were raised by her grandparents part of their lives. Um, Not sure who she was technically living with at this time, um, but yeah. And she was attending as a junior at the Pocatello High School in 2006 when she was senselessly murdered. 
She liked to draw, listen to music, and hang out with her boyfriend. She made good grades and was very friendly, and um, she was close to her younger brother. He was only, I think, a year younger than her. His name was Andrew, and they were very close. They enjoyed going to the same school and hanging out and doing fun things, so I thought that was sweet. Um, the killers were two boys she went to school with. Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik were also juniors at Cassie's school. They were fascinated by films, notably horror films, with Brian's bedroom walls decorated with movie posters like Halloween, Friday the 13th, and things of the like. One day, the boys proposed making a slasher of their own, a real one with a real killing. The perfect setting for a horrific nightmare would be provided soon enough. The days leading up to the murder, Brian and Tori prepared a plan with notes and a mask. Uh, yeah, I think they decorated masks, so they were getting really into it, and they planned on scaring the victim in as many ways as possible before killing them. Brian and Tori go into this plan together, right? And on the day of, they film themselves discussing the plan and don't hide their excitement. Once interrogations would start, their friendship was as airtight as their alibi, which not very, once you see. Cassie Jo was going to be house-sitting for her aunt Allison and Uncle Frank Contreras. They had a large home on Whispering Cliffs Drive in northeast Bannock County. The family entrusted Cassie to watch the home and the family's three cats and two dogs for the weekend. Cassie told her boyfriend Matt Beckham and his friends uh, Brian and Tori that she was going to be home alone that weekend so maybe they could hang out. And I'm not sure if Matt is the one who invited Tori and Brian uh, or if Cassie was as close to those two boys as Matt was, not sure. Um, But she is in their film at school. They took the time to say hi to her and put her on camera, and it was just so disturbing. But um, maybe they were acquaintances. So that Friday, September 22nd, 2006, the kids get out of school. Cassie heads over to her aunt and uncle's house, and at around 6, Matt stops by to hang out for the evening. A little while later, Tori, Adamchick, and Brian Draper come by in Tori's car. Upon arriving, Matt's, Matt greets them at the door, and from what I understand, the boys are given a tour of the entire home by Matt. Not sure if Cassie was present the whole tour. Um, After the tour, the group settles in the living room after selecting a movie from another room, and they land on Kill Bill Volume 2, a pretty long film to wait through before a killing, if you ask me. Yeah, what the fuck? Brian claimed he got bored, and the two boys told Matt and Cassie that they were going to a theater to watch a movie. Brian and Tori leave, and Matt and Cassie settle back on the couch. After some time, they began to hear noises, and suddenly... Lights are flickering and shutting off and on at the home. Oh, no. Uh, could you imagine? This is... Mm-mm. I would have instantly thought it was those boys, though. Right. But, I mean, at the same time, what, you're just going to shrug it off or, you know? No, or maybe they didn't think playing. you really are, you think? No, I'm not going to shrug it off. I'm going to fucking freak the fuck out and make yeah my boyfriend go fucking find out what it is. I know. And in a place like Whispering Cliffs, like, come on. Yeah. Spooky. So the setting is like getting eerie. The lights are turning off um, off and on and the power shut off momentarily before coming back on. Cassie is pretty scared at this point. The dog keeps looking down the basement stairs, growling and barking. Oh, no. And Matt calls his mom asking if he can stay the night with Cassie. His mom says no, but offers Cassie come stay at their house. 
Matt relays the information, but Cassie declines politely. She w- she wants to stay and house sit to make sure the pets are okay. So around 1030, Matt's mom picks him up and Cassie is left alone at the house. Matt couldn't reach Cassie for the weekend. Oh On God. Sunday, I know. On Sunday, September 24th, 2006, the Contreras family returns. Cassie's 13-year-old cousin walks into the living room, finding Cassie's lifeless, bloodied body on the floor. Mm -hmm. Scarred for life. You have no idea. Um, We'll touch back on the Contreras family uh, at the end of this, but wow. Um, I can't even imagine that. Just Movies and the subject of film is a reoccurring theme in this case, so keep that in mind and you'll see what I mean. Um, So the Contreras family is relocated in the meantime, and the investigation is taking off. It looks like nobody was breaking in the house and stealing things. They have a bunch of nice jewelry and TVs and stuff, and it was all untouched. It made no sense. Um, So it had to be someone that Cassie knew to let them in and be familiar with in order to have them in the house without any sign of forced entry. (sighs) Things were suspicious from the jump. Someone had gotten into the home and killed Cassie, and there were footprints found outside of the home. The cops question everyone who hung out with Cassie last, starting with Matt, who happens to be the main suspect. Mm -mm. You see, not only was he the last person to see her alive, but he was her boyfriend, and when given the news, he was completely unemotional. What? Yeah, so he just blankly answered questions. They took him in, I think, that same day. Because it was just like they're immediately trying to figure out what happened. And they not only questioned the 16-year-old, but they also got a polygraph. So he agreed to take a polygraph. Um, mm-hmm. He passed it. So they let him off the hook. And in their questioning of Matt, he let them know about Brian and Tori also being a part of that evening and how they watched a movie. And the Pocatello police interview Brian first, I believe, and Tori second. I'm not sure if they were able to share information in between these um, interrogations or what, but um, Brian was first. And in the interrogations, you can oh, you can see them online. They're very interesting, so you can look them up. But it's fascinating how confident at the beginning, especially Brian, is when he comes in there. He's kind of like drumming on his knees. He's acting like you know a regular teenage boy who doesn't give you know a care in the world, mm-hmm. even though they keep emphasizing she was your friend. You know, like. Aren't you sad about your friend? And they look uh, they look like they're doing fine. So Brian at first is very confident, and then you can slowly see his stutter come in. And it's just out of control that the stuttering could be just a giveaway right away. Um, so let's see. And the nerves really begin when the techniques that the interrogators use start working. So Brian gives the police their agreed-upon alibi. I guess he and Tori had planned this beforehand. I'm not sure if they wrote it down or what, but they had agreed that they had an alibi. Tori and Brian went to the movies around 9.30, got there around 9.45. He started slipping up a bit when they asked details like, where did you go before it started? Where did you sit? And how many people were in the theater? And they were they're asking to see if they can find witnesses that can testify they were there. But it's when they ask him to tell them about the movie that he supposedly saw where it starts going to shit. Eventually, he admits he didn't watch White Noise after all, so on to the second alibi. So Brian and Tori leave Cassie and Matt, and instead of going to the movies, they decided to go through cars. 
So they made up this thing where they would, they've done it twice before in the past where they would just see if cars on the street were unlocked and then go through them and steal. What the fuck? So they had done this before and they realized like, okay, if our first lie doesn't work, our se- it's going to look like we're just covering up for our illegal activities, you know, which happens to be stealing from cars. So easy enough. So he starts telling them, you know, well, we go through cars sometimes and you caught you caught us, whatever. They have done it before and it gives them something they wouldn't outright admit to. So it has to be the truth once pride, right? Well, Tori apparently didn't even attempt to use the movie alibi at all. And he just went straight to that they went through cars after they left Cassie and Matt. And I'm assuming it's because Brian might have let him know, like, the movie thing didn't work. I fucked it mm-hmm. all up. I don't know. I didn't know a single thing. It was so embarrassing to watch him sit there and squirm while they were like, well, tell us a little bit about the movie. Secondhand I was like, great. <laughs> yeah, I was like, great. Why didn't you pick one you'd already seen, idiot? But anyways. <laughs> so eventually the interrogators lay out the inconsistencies. And they're kind of like laying little traps for Tori now that Brian pretty much like gave them what they needed to know, which I haven't told you all that part yet, but... <clears throat> He didn't even attempt to use the movie alibi, probably because Brian warned him. And in his interrogation, he claims that they went through cars near to where Cassie was staying. They wore gloves and got into about four cars, according to Tori. Eventually, the interrogators lay out the inconsistencies in the story. After they left Cassie and Matt, they used things from the crime scene, like a blue bag, and saying witnesses reported it. They, they say, like, oh, this, we have a person that said they saw you carrying a blue bag. What was in it? And Tori falls right into it because they are laying out things that they did have in their possession at one point. And so why lie about it, I guess? So it's just it's wild to watch these teenagers try to figure it out on the spot with, mind you, not sure if Brian's parents were in the room with him, but Tori's parents were in with him. And watching them chime in is the, the best feeling. Yes, the parents. Literally, he says like, oh, I, you know, I, I think I... St- took a CD case from one of the cars. And then his mom's like, but you had that CD case like a week ago. Are you sure? Oh my God. And he's like, oh, that might've been the DVD case. Like it gets, gets wild. So if you're interested in watching people squirm in their seat because they are going to get caught, then you will definitely enjoy that. So I think I used Explore With Us on YouTube for the interrogations. They have one video on just the interrogations, and then they have another video on the case itself. But these interrogations are so satisfying, but also you're scared to death because, you know, Brian's over here stuttering. Tori's over here trying to figure out what his lie is, and his mom is, like, getting in the middle of it. And then at some point, his dad has a moment with him alone, and he's like, you know, we love you, right? Like... I didn't get to tell you, but you need to tell them the truth and we'll figure it out, blah, blah, blah. Like it's oh very God. intense. Yeah. I was like, whoa, these, that's when you can tell that these are kids that just messed up really right. fucking bad. Yeah. Ugh, they were in too deep. I'll tell you their excitement from those films. We're about to listen to a little clip in a minute and you're going to see like, oh no, it's not well. They are not well. So they um, start asking things like, so who has a crush on Cassie? And also that really, that really was exciting for me to watch too. Cause you find out that they both at some point liked her. Oh my God. Incel, like incel material. Yes. I'm talking like, yes. oh, it's, it's satisfying, but also like, I f- fucking hate that. So 
they uh, they start asking, you know, who had a crush on Cassie? Surprise, surprise, they both liked her at some point. And Tori went as far as to mention that he hated Matt last year. Oh, so great. Yeah, it would have been great if both of them stayed that night, huh? They go on to mention some masks that the boys had and ask about that. He tells them all about that, but denies wearing them or having them out that night. And slowly, as they dropped hints on what they had already found and seeing what the boys would agree with or add details to, they reminded them that they could help them out of a jam. We're here for you. You owe it to your parents to tell us the truth. Brian had his room searched after his second interview and an empty knife knife sheath was found. Upon his third interview, Brian finally admits the boys went back to the house to scare Cassie, just to scare her. They carried knives and wore masks and said he thought Tori was pretending to stab Cassie to scare him and thought it was a joke till he realized she was really being stabbed. Oh my god, man. Yeah. Brian tried downplaying his role in the whole thing and said he didn't touch Cassie at all that night. He claimed Tori threatened his life if he told on him. September 27th, he was arrested, and Tori is about to be. So that day, upon his third interview, Brian had taken the police to Black Rock Canyon, where the boys stopped after the murder to dispose of multiple things. Among what they disposed of, there was two masks, the knives, and the tape that they recorded their little film on. They had tried to burn everything, but the tape was actually playable, and this would be what ultimately made them extremely guilty of especially conspiracy. At this point, they have plenty even without the forensics results, but they really want a confession from Tori. With Brian already in custody, Tori is interviewed and asked for an attorney. Um, His dad steps in throughout, but at this point, he asks to speak with Tori, and and on tape, his dad is seen telling him he loves him because they already had a confession, and this is the second time his dad, like, steps in Um, And you can see him on the interrogation film. The interrogators, um, because they had already had a confession and evidence from the dump site, they snuck in details to ask about buying matches. And the interrogators come in and tell Tori and his dad that they know the boys, the two boys killed Cassie and have enough evidence. Uh, Oh, yeah. And so about the matches part, Brian, like, threw Tori under the bus completely. And then this was Tori's turn to throw Brian under the bus a little bit just to help out the lie, not necessarily blame anything on him. But he had said, oh, yeah, we just had matches because Brian smokes. And, I, you know, I didn't want him smoking in my car. So we stopped off at this one place. And mm-hmm. I let him smoke, like, two cigarettes. And so – and they play – they – oh, man. In the other interrogation after – I don't think it counts as an interrogation anymore. But after Brian's already in custody and they just want a little more details – they let Brian know that Tori tried to say he's a smoker and he's like, I don't smoke. And it like, you can see on his face, he's like, wow, he told a lie when he's the one who tried to say Tori was the whole thing. Like the whole thing was his idea. So he was so offensive. He was so offended. These boys, I swear. So they, um, they say, look, you, we don't have to do this. You know, we already know what we know. Just, you know, if you want an attorney, whatever, that just means the questioning stops right here. But we got to keep you because we know what we know. And so uh, everybody, the dad's like, is this true? Like, did you kill this girl? He's like freaking out. And they they leave the room again and the family is left alone. When they come back, they have a seat again and they let him know like, okay, so what's the deal? And it happens several times throughout that he does. He's not sure if he wants to keep talking or not. Then they drop the bomb. They reveal that they got a confession 
and you can see Tori look up. Right, he's looking down at the floor, and he looks up right when they say that, and he looks pissed. And at that point, he knows he's in custody. They found the videotape that they had tried to burn. They let him know they found the tape, and they can no longer question him, but he is under arrest, and he has the opportunity to give his side. He doesn't give them a confession. September 29th, Brian is questioned further while in custody to try to attain more details about the crime. Each killer was tried separately as adults and charged with one count of murder in the first degree and one count of conspiracy to murder in the first degree. Brian's conviction for conspiracy was overturned due to errors in jury instructions. However, both received life sentences without the possibility of parole, and although throughout the years they've tried to change that, reduce their sentence, say that this is cruel and unusual punishment, like we were just kids. They've tr- they've like retried over and over to like have their case looked at. But no, life in prison is the life for them. I, apparently on their way to prison, they were their trials were a month apart and they were transported to prison together in the same vehicle. And it came out that they were trying to ask the driver if just let us go. Like we're just kids. Why don't you just let us go? As if that was going to work. Like, right. And um, but they also used that uh, time while they were being transported to prison for their life sentences to make up and be friends again and say, you know, no hard feelings, man. We did what we did, and here we are. So cheesy. Like, get over yourselves. But anyway, so. Finally, the full story about what happened that night has come out, and so here we go. Brace yourselves, everybody. When the boys left the house, they drove around filming and discussing who might be next, who was home alone, and when. They changed into black clothing and waited for the right time to return and asked Matt what his plans were for getting home. They were excited if they got to kill two people at once. They drove back to the Contreras' home and waited. So as it turns out, when Matt left that night, the boys were already in the house. You see, at some point during their visit, Brian had unlocked the basement door to ensure they'd get back in for their plan. The tape at 9.53 shows them saying they are ready but nervous. And I have a tape. Let me see. Maybe go ahead and just play this whole part here. We found our victim and sad as it may be. She's our friend, but you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie's daughter. She's going to be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? So you can tell, like, that's Brian speaking. He's very excited. That's at that at that point, I think it's like 8.53. They're driving on their way back to the home. Oh, my God. They're just so excited. So spot on with the Matthew Lillard character yeah. and scream right? <laughs> Jesus uh so yeah so they're excited out in the middle of nowhere how perfect can you get I I mean like holy dude I'm horny just thinking about it. hell yeah nerds Tori was the one that's like I'm horny just thinking about it <laughs> prepubescence okay <clears throat> teens don't kill people because then I, I have a right to make fun of you and that's not nice Okay. So annoying. He's like, say hi, please. 
Ew, I'd be like, what? Get the fuck? Yeah, you should see the tapes. She's literally putting stuff in her locker and she's like, hey, that's what makes me think like they weren't really friends. And so, I mean, I I would love my boyfriend and everything, but I'd be like, I don't know those two losers. They're weird. Don't let them come over here. You know what I mean? Yeah, what the fuck? They were filming me literally today acting weird. I wonder if she said any of that. I feel so bad for her. That was just awful. But yeah, so they're, um, they skipped their fourth period and there's more video of them planning it out and talking about this like death list that they have. There should be no odd against killing people. I know it's a wrong thing, but hell, hell, you restrict somebody from it, they're going to want it more. I was 950. September 22nd, 2006. We know there's lots of doors. There, there's lots of places to hide. I locked the back doors. That's all a lot. Now we just gotta wait. I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, I just killed Cassie. Oh, oh fuck. That felt like disturbing eh very disturbing the adrenaline <sighs> rush that they have mm-hmm. is like disgusting mm-hmm. yeah like they can't they're like they can't even breathe it's so exciting to them um so brian saying that he was forced or coerced into partaking um i'm not very sure of that because as the cops also, they asked Brian, you know, so this was a movie, right? So why didn't you get the big scene on film? And he said, well, you know, stabbing someone is a little hard when you're holding a camera is pretty much what he said. So um, they didn't film the actual scene, which thank goodness, like I I would be curious to see, but at the same time, like Jesus Christ, like this is a child. These are all children and it's just so horrible. And that is enough. Like the, the reaction to what they did after, or, you know, after the fact they recorded their excitement about what they just did it's just awful so yeah um you can tell that they they really did what they needed to do so as it turns out they are guilty of conspiracy because of all that film filming that they did for that day and they even said the date they said the names like what else is there to say um let's see um, 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 um. So they snuck back into the home sometime around 10 and they made noises while the couple watched TV in hopes the two of them would wander into the basement to check it out and meet the knife-wielding masked nerds in the dark. They dropped ashtrays, shattering the glass on the stairs. When When they didn't respond to the sounds, they messed with the lights, hoping they'd come check the breaker box in the basement. Matt had called Tori before leaving, because they had plans to potentially hang out after their movie and after Matt left Cassie. And when Tori answered, he was whispering and he said it's because they were still at the movie, but that's because he answered his phone in the basement. Oh my goodness. Creepy, right? Yes. I wish his phone would have been on loud. That would have been even, oh my God. Yeah, it would have been creepier, but they would have gone and said like, oh, what the fuck? He's here. They're here still. How'd they get in? And then it would have been a whole thing. So he lied, said they're still at the movies. But then Matt's like, don't worry about picking me up. I'm already leaving. My mom's getting me. And so, uh, yeah, Um, Matt left and it was now or never. They shut the power out one more time and slammed a cupboard as the dog growled. When she didn't fall into their trap, they went out to find her. 
She was laying on the couch and got up when she heard a loud noise near her. She reportedly said, who is that? I'll kick your ass. And they jumped on her, stabbing her 30 times. That's what she said? Mm-hmm. And then they stabbed her and killed her. Mm-hmm. Oh, my she- God. Yep. And uh, they stabbed her 30 times, which 12 of those stabbings were fatal. So they just went went to town on that. And supposedly Tori was stabbing and Brian hesitated. I can't, I kind of believe that he would hesitate, but I don't believe that that wasn't his intention to fight, to carry out the plan. Um, so Tori said, uh, that he was stabbing or Brian said Tori was doing all the stabbing at first and Brian hesitated and stabbed her in the leg. Tori said, that's not going to work. She has to die. You have to do it. Stab her. And her autopsy would show at least one deep stab on her inner thigh. So that would maybe make sense if that's how they went about it. But um, initially, they were definitely both in it. And they both killed her. The majority of the stab marks were in her chest. And when it was all over, she lay lifeless, bleeding on the floor in her pajamas. What the fuck? Mm Mm-hmm. The following day, Matt called Cassie like 15 times, and he was worried. Brian and Tori even hung out with Matt on Saturday. And when Matt wanted to stop by where Cassie was house-sitting, Tori said he didn't have the gas to make the trip and just took Matt home. (sighs) They spoke of the Zodiac Killer and Ted Bundy, calling them amateurs and discussing their future in filmmaking and killing. They admired the Columbine shooters. Their peers felt that Tori seemed more off than Brian, but Brian was definitely masking... um, as a friendly misfit. Tori didn't hide his intentions. They planned to kill more, as mentioned in the tape. Um, and on the tape, they mentioned a death list that they were working on, not to mention they named a girl. Her name was Kirsten. They, they talked about her on the same tape that Cassie was on. And uh, they said she'd be home alone between six and seven. Like, that's just so creepy. Yeah. Like, how do they even find out this stuff? Like, kids need to be careful. Um, In the end, the taping of their activities was their undoing. Cassie's heartbroken family still misses her, of course, and her uncle and aunt still struggle in trying to sell the house that the crime took place. Oh, my goodness. Um, So it's pretty sad. They they had bought that house. uh, They were moving. So I'm just going to read the article because it's in here. What the heck? Okay. This is from... October 26, 2014. I hope that they've had luck since then, but this is the last reporting of the house. Pocatello. Frank and Allison Contreras moved to Idaho in 2005. The couple had combined a family of three children, has a combined family of three children, and they were looking forward to exiting the Bay Area of California and settling into their new country home in Southeast Idaho. Um, But after just one year of moving into their two-acre spread on Whispering Cliffs Drive, the family's lives was forever changed and their dream home became a nightmare. It was inside Frank and Allison's home in Taihe that Cassie Jo Stoddart, Frank's niece, was stabbed to death by her classmates, Tori and Brian, in 2006. Adam Chick was back in the news this month seeking post-conviction relief for his for the sentence passed down by retired 6th District Judge Peter McDermott. He is currently serving life without parole for the murder. Adam Chick's attorney... Dennis Benjamin of Boise argued that the sentence imposed a cruel and unusual punishment. The killing was brutal. Cassie was stabbed 30 times while she was house-sitting for Frank and Allison. 
Cassie was a good girl, Frank said. She didn't drink or use drugs, and she was a straight-A student. She was responsible. We didn't just trust her with our house. She babysat my son, too. It was the Contreras' 13-year-old daughter that found Cassie on the living room floor. Frank said experts believed Cassie was killed sometime Friday night. He and his family had not returned until Sunday evening. The Bannock County Sheriff's Office put the family up in a hotel for two weeks during the investigation, and Sheriff Lauren Nielsen even helped cover the insurance deductible to start the cleanup process after the crime. The split-level house has fresh paint, new carpet, and a spacious living room that no one uses. We just never went back in there, said Frank. Minimally furnished and tidy, the room has a feeling of emptiness, and Frank said that sense of sadness impacted his entire family. Mm. Um, Allison lost her job and fell into depression. I had to pick up a second job. Medication alone was 300 a month, Frank said. In the first two years were the worst. It was our dream home, and it turned into a nightmare. Frank's stepdaughter suffered a breakdown after she reportedly... Um, after reportedly seeing Cassie in the house. Mm. So they've... Um, They've had hauntings. I forgot to mention that. They didn't go into they didn't go into detail, but I think it gets mentioned further in this article. So she had a nervous breakdown because she saw Cassie in the house oh after the fact, after she was already gone. So not only was it traumatic to find the body, but then she had a nervous breakdown after seeing her in the house, um, potentially a residual haunting, and she attempted suicide. Um, oh my so- god. So her, his stepdaughter was very traumatized from the whole event. So yeah, um, with the with the potential hauntings of the house and everything, they they have not returned, and they're trying so hard to sell it. Frank said each member of the family has had an unexplained encounter in the home. Frank said that he and Allison have put the house on the market every year since the murder, but so far have no offers. The house sits on two acres of two and a half mile road off two and a half mile road it features 1600 square feet of family space fenced pastures and a gar and a garage yet despite the house's amenities frank and allison just want out of it each appeal in court keeps the memory of that horrific event that took place in frank and allison's home fresh in the family's minds it's like groundhog day the same thing over and over frank said i just quit loving and started drinking it put pressure on my marriage and my family. Allison still lives in the house with their 12-year-old son, Frank. However, no Frank, however, no longer lives there. Frank said that the family is doing much better. He's doing much better, but they feel trapped in a house that they won't that won't sell and that they can no longer stand to live in. We just want out. We want to fulfill our obligation. We're at the point that we will take what we owe, $138,000. Just we just want to walk. Um, but there is no, but there is a stigma to this house, on this house. Pocatello realtor Randy Spencer said realtors are not obligated to disclose to potential buyers that a violent crime, suicide, or murder took place at a property for sale. But he said if the buyer is a client, the realtor must divulge the information. The difference between a customer and a client is that a client has a signed buyer-seller's agreement with the realtor. Spencer said during his extended career as a realtor, he has never had a potential buyer ask about violent acts or suicides. And he recalled two incidents, incidences where the homeowners committed suicide, but both of the properties sold. Spencer predicts an optimistic outcome for the house Cassie Jo Stoddart was murdered in. If the property is property mar- marketed, it will sell, Spencer said. Wow, so heartwarming of you, Spencer. What the fuck? Um, so their whole family just, and her younger brother 
he was hit really hard um, by the news. So that was hard to hear as well. Mm -hmm. So the responding officers noted that Stoddart's body was covered in blood and riddled with deep lacerations and stab wounds. Um, I wanted to see if there's more about her autopsy, but I guess not. On April 17, 2007, Brian Draper was found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy. One down, one more to go, Stoddart's grandfather, Paul Cisneros, said at the time. Her mother, Anna Stoddart, merely said, I'm just happy my baby got her justice. So that was the murder of Cassie Jo Stoddart in Pocatello, Idaho. That was crazy. Jeez. Um, I wonder if... Matt probably definitely has survivor's guilt, but I wonder if his mother feels any kind of way. Like, if he would have stayed in the house, how likely would they have survived, both of them, you know? I mean, I don't know. I'm sure she thinks that he would have died, too. Yeah. Like, that's the worst-case scenario, and that's what you usually consider first before allowing something. Mm -hmm. But, geez... That still gets me that story. Um, so in their filming and in their notes and stuff, they had mentioned like the Scream movie and they're like excited about being killers and filming everything. What the fuck? So that's why it's referred to as the Scream killing. And not to mention there's two of them and that makes kind of sense. Yeah. But um, yeah, very disturbing and just so unnecessary, just so annoying and so senseless and no reason. There's never a reason, but Jesus. They wanted to be cool and they wanted to be remembered and make their mark on the world. Um, I'm not going to, you know, expose you to everything I watched of theirs because they're so annoying. But um, I will say that they they definitely gave themselves away by filming everything and then not destroying the tape the way they thought. Um, yeah, they're fucking idiot children. Like, mm-hmm. why would you... It's funny that you say that because I found a bunch of fucking uh, camcorder tapes that <laughs> we recorded, like like me and my friends, when we were that same fucking age. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I can just imagine the fucking cringy, fucked up shit. I remember that. It's like, yep. why would you do that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, she... She was wearing another thing that just stuck out to me because, man, it's just like a normal night. Like, you think you're just going to go to bed, but she was wearing, uh, I think, star pajama pants and then like a white tank top. She was just a 16 year old girl with hopes and dreams. That is so sad. Mm hmm. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting something, but I don't know what it is. Hmm. Well, that's that. And imagine if Matt had gone over on his own earlier than. Oh, no. Hmm. And found her himself. Well, I don't think he would have been able to get in. He would have had to just call the cops once he got there. Yeah, but that probably would have been better. I mean, that would have definitely been better than the little girl. Uh, Yeah, oh, my God. Jeez, poor girl. And I don't know where the, all the dogs were at. Like, they were growling and barking when when they were not in the room with her. I don't know. 
Unless maybe she put them to bed. She probably put them to bed in their kennels or something. I don't know. Oh, they were in their kennels all fucking weekend. Makes me even more sad. If they were, I have no idea. I feel like they were kept out, um, out in a different part of the house or like, I wish I knew all the details, but I just feel like three dogs in the house and those two kids were able to overtake someone who's familiar to the dogs. You know what I mean? Like maybe maybe they, the dogs got scared. I know Apple, my dog is a huge ass fucking chicken and she would definitely. Fawn would have got scared too. Yeah. With the screaming and the flailing and the true, maybe the noise and shit. Yeah. Oh man. Well, yeah. So, um, Rest in peace, Cassie Joe. And that concludes this episode of um, Give Me the Creeps. I don't know what else to say. I feel like I'm forgetting a big detail, but if anyone is more interested in like the interrogation part, because really getting these kids was like not that hard, but it was definitely interesting. Um, in that Explore With Us YouTube video, they labeled when the interrogators were using specific methods and techniques like the reads method and like things I didn't know had names. And so that gave me a little more background into how people are interrogated and how they can get a confession when it looks like they're not breaking. And so, yeah, pretty much it was a lot of we're on your side. Come on, son, tell us we're here for you. You know, nothing's going to happen to you. We can make it a lot easier if you just tell us the truth. And then other times it was like, um, ooh, let me tell you this really, this juicy part, because I could see his blood boiling when he was discussing this. Um, so I forget how it comes but it comes about, but if you, know, you watch the videos, at some point in the interrogation, Brian, uh, I believe it's his second or third when they're really trying to rile him up and get more answers, uh, interview. He's questioned about if when he had a crush on Cassie and he's like sometime last year, you know, but, you know, we're cool. Matt's Matt. She's with Matt. It's whatever. And he mentions that, you know, did you ever get like jealous? And Brian's kind of like, well, no. But then at some point they talk about how there was a condom wrapper in the toilet. And that means, you know, Cassie and Matt had just, you know, done before the two boys showed up and he's talking about that. You see Brian get really mad because, yeah, he's like, yeah, I saw that in the toilet, you know, and Matt told me that they had just had sex before we came. So, you know, it was kind of like that kind of a getting him mad, getting him worked up. Like you have a reason to want to kill her, don't you? Yep. Oh, shit. She's not with you. So... Anyways, uh, interesting. Messed up, but very interesting. And yeah, don't flush your... Come on. They tried to flush the the condom and the wrapper came back (laughs) into the toilet bowl. That's how the the cop knew that, to ask that specific question. Um, That there was a condom wrapper in the toilet. Which means that her uncle would have found that. Like, (laughs) I'm sorry. It's not funny. Yeah, that is terrible. Kids really are just like, oh man. Hide the evidence. Flush it. (laughs) I remember those days. Anyways. So yeah, that was a very senseless and horrible murder. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to give us a follow on Instagram at G-I-M-M-E, The Creeps, Twitter as well. Um, Congratulations, Elon, depending on if you like that or not. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. But uh, thanks for listening, you guys. So, did we give you the creeps?